Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we hear how some artisan cheesemakers are starting to embrace regenerative farming. We give you a sneak peek at one of the producers featured in our new series, Who Feeds Us. We learn about a new course investigating the complex links between food and development. And finally, we hear from a long-time farmer who's got some clever tips on how to be resourceful with machinery. This episode is supported by Treedom. Treedom make it easy for you and me to support a farmer in Africa or South America to plant a tree. To date, over a million trees have been planted by local farmers, bringing environmental, social, and financial benefits to their communities. Once you buy a tree, you can also follow its journey online. It's a really brilliant gift, and we recommend learning more about it and the good work that Treedom are doing at treedom.net. Bronwyn Percival is the cheese buyer for Neil's Yard Dairy in London. Abby visited her to hear about how a collaboration with a small dairy farm in Yorkshire is as much about nourishing the landscape as nourishing cheese. Recent months have been a challenging time for cheesemakers, and this conversation feels more relevant than ever as we all look to more resilient and regenerative farming ecosystems to be a backbone of our food systems. This recording was made prior to the COVID pandemic. I think from Neil Jardari's perspective, without good farmers making good cheeses, we don't have a business. And so it's absolutely in our selfish best interest to do everything that we can to help people who are struggling, either with the quality of their cheese or with the financial side of their business, really get through those troubled waters into a place where they're making great cheese and making money. And so for us, success looks like them running profitable businesses as well and splitting that value all the way up and down the supply chain. So, you know, I think that's been part of the ethos and the philosophy since the very beginning. Um, and I hope that it's something that we're continuing today and into the future. Just even over the last five to ten years, we've really started to think differently about farming as the first step in the cheesemaking process. And for me, that's really exciting because it's this whole area that, you know, we really haven't been that familiar with in the past and this opportunity to understand farming better and to start to understand what great farming looks like and how we can taste those flavors in the cheese. And I think we're still at the very beginning of that path, but I also think it holds this extraordinary potential for us to really discover the flavors of good farming and to help our customers understand what that is and to celebrate that by rewarding the people who are farming in really sustainable and wonderful ways with a sustainable price for their cheese as well. The, the choice of cheese that a new farmer makes is really essential. Are we going to be able to taste their farming system? Are we going to be able to have a cheese that's really delicious to eat? And then following back from that, how are we going to accentuate the uniqueness of this cheese? There are tons and tons, there are hundreds of cheeses being made within the UK, and many of them taste essentially the same. They taste of commercial starter cultures that have been added. They taste like milk that's been, you know, from cows that are fed on a lot of concentrates. And to be honest, it's really hard to differentiate yourself by just using a different starter culture or a different unique recipe. It's really about what is your farming system looking like? What's that biodiversity and how can we express that in the cheese? When I get samples of cheeses that reflect those values, immediately we're interested in having a chat. Let me show you a cheese that just came in. Unfortunately, we're going to have to go into the cold room, but... <laughs> 
This is a this is a cheese that's made by a, a, one of our newest cheesemakers. His name is Andrew Hatton, and he is actually, um, a, I would say he's a farmer first and foremost, and then a cheesemaker. He is based in Nitterdale in the Yorkshire Dales. It's probably the most remote farm that we buy from. But to get there, we can't even drive our rental car to get there because it's so the the track to the farm is so poorly maintained and bumpy. So we have to park in the nearest village, and he collects us in his four x four, and so it's like a three mile track to the farm it's absolutely out in the middle of nowhere but it's also in this sort of very protected um, area of natural beauty and to be honest I think for Andrew the farming is almost a means to an end in terms of preserving a really sort of rare um, ecosystem of upland hay meadows with huge floral biodiversity but also rare ground nesting birds and this whole um, you know this whole ecology of interesting and endangered um, species including his cows which are are northern dairy shorthorns, which is a critically endangered breed with only about 150 cows left. So he's decided that he's going to use these cows because they originated here and they're absolutely perfectly adapted to his ecosystem to make a cheese that's like the Wensleydales that would have been made on all of those farms 100 years ago. It's cold! These came in a few weeks ago, and uh, we put them aside where nobody's going to mess with them. And I wonder if, unfortunately, they've been so We've only had three cheeses from him so far. He's had a lot of trouble convincing his local health inspector that the cheeses are all right to sell. And I think one of the challenges that small cheesemakers who are just getting started in the UK have is that often the people who are responsible for approving their businesses and helping them get started are used to a very different status quo. So in this case, the environmental health officer is also responsible for inspecting Wensleydale Creamery, which is, you know, one valley over, which makes uh, more than 5,000 tons a year of cheeses that are uh, made from pasteurized milk. And for her, that's the status quo. So somebody making cheese from 15 cows using raw milk and a very slow acidification is automatically a little bit scary. And so I think they've been working together um, really well. And actually, both sides have come a long way to understanding the others. And I have to say that we aren't able to sell these cheeses yet, but we're so excited to be starting to, hopefully before the end of this year, and if not, when the season starts again uh, next year. Andrew and Sally are milking their cows seasonally, which is another thing which is almost unheard of with cows. Goats and sheep, we think, you know, it's completely natural that they'd only be giving milk during the summer months, but with cows, we're so used to the modern paradigm where cows can just, you know, you have herds that are um, calving all year long, and that the, you have an uninterrupted supply of cheese. With the Wensleydale, it's only going to be made between April and November and all the cows will calve at the same time which means that the early lactation milk will be very different from the mid-lactation milk and the late lactation milk and actually in reading old books Andrew said that he um, was very interested that some of these Wensleydale makers were talking about making three different styles of cheese based on the stage of lactation of their cows and that the midsummer cheeses were the ones that would most often naturally go blue and be ripe in time for Christmas whereas the cheeses made in autumn for example would be much softer and ready to sell earlier. So it's really interesting to be using this as a way of exploring not only what old farming systems might look like, but what actually the cheeses that could only be made with the kind of milk that was coming from these highly diverse systems might be tasting like. Everything that I see, and from listening to your podcast as well, I recognize that we're on the cusp of a really significant change in the face of farming. And I think entering into that dialogue with 
farmers is something that is at the top of our priority list in terms of understanding what that seismic shift looks like and how we as a cheese industry are are placed to help people who are who are working to you know to evolve in this way how we can help them get the most value from those changes that they're making so um, you know I would love to have more of a dialogue with people who are coming to this not necessarily from the cheese side to begin with but from the farming side because we have tons to learn and I feel like that exchange could be extremely fruitful. Abigail Holsborough is head miller at Brixton Windmill in London. They initially started volunteering at the windmill because of their passion for heritage sites and heritage technology. You may have heard we're about to release a new series called Who Feeds Us? The first episode is out mid-October, and Abigail is one of the many people featured. The series is a celebration of the many key workers like Abigail who kept us fed during the COVID lockdown and beyond. I'm Abigail. Um, I've been a miller at the windmill for three years this month. Literally every month I'm in here um, milling grain or milling flour, sorry. Um, and then we deliver it to bakeries and shops around Brixton. When I joined, uh, the senior miller at the time was a guy called Sean. Um, and Sean was very kind of rough and ready. He would just chuck you in at the deep end um, and he would ask me what, what I thought of the consistency of the flour. And I'm, I'm not a baker, I've never really baked, so I didn't know what I was doing. But yeah, he taught me that this idea of the rule of thumb um, which came from millers, that we would, it's almost like each time we mill, it's, it's an experiment because you never get, conditions always different, the weather's always different. Of course, the grain is the same, you hope, but there can be changes in, in the consistency of that. So each time we put some grain into the hopper, um, we'll spend a few minutes just like everyone will, who's in the mill will get a handful of the flour and like literally rub it between your thumb and an index finger and think okay is this good enough or do we move it a bit more um, and each time we're lowering the stones um, just to get that consistency right. So when I joined uh, it was very evident quite quickly that I was the youngest person here. Um, a lot of the volunteers are retirees. Um, a lot of them or some of them had kind of baked or a few have worked in engineering and that's how they kind of got involved. Um, and yeah, I think I was the youngest by about 20 years initially, or maybe more, um, which was nice for me um, because I was just learning not just about the mill, but about life from people. Um, I remember one guy I started working with in the beginning, he was an engineer on the Crystal Maze, that uh, game show that used to come on. Um, but it was so cool for me to hear about his experiences and the stuff that he'd learned. Um, and in some ways, being amongst people who have retired, it's nice just kind of having a slower pace um, of life and conversation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm obviously keen to get more young people involved um, beyond, because we get a lot of school children in and, and colleges as well and sixth formers. Um, but for me, it's it needs to go beyond just those initial educational workshops and actually encouraging young people, not just in mills, um, across the country to get involved in heritage um, it has a very bad stigma um, at the moment in that it's 
it's old buildings for old people and those are the only kind of people who are interested um when in actual fact there's loads of things you can learn and loads of skills even in terms of employment this is voluntary obviously but there are skills i've had here in terms of working with other people um sorting out admin and logistics of the mill and deliveries that definitely helps me um in terms of work and yeah so when i was younger um i was a brownie guide <laughs> it's very important to me um and so there's always kind of been a moral duty, I suppose, to protect the things around me and in my community. Um, and that kind of initially, so I grew up in Walthamstow. Um, we've got a really interesting, um, in terms of museums and galleries and things like that. Um, but the things that I was more drawn to was like, we've got the old pump house uh, <laughs> museum and there's all these old trains and, and fire engines. And um, it's it's... I suppose it's kind of like, yeah, the things that are the cogs that keep life turning, I suppose. That sounds very cheesy, um, but at least when you think about a mill, um, for us now, we've talked about this loads, it's, we're so removed from the processes and the people that make our food. Um, and it's nice, one, to, to, to understand how things were done before, but then two, to also have the the pleasure, I suppose, of of still making flour and, and making things that people find useful um, and really enjoy um, as well. So, yeah. It's interesting when you think about history in general and the way it's taught to young people um, in schools because it's this, it's this thing you kind of tick off and it's like, well, we cover World War II, we talk about Churchill for a bit and then, I don't know, the civil rights movement in America and that's the end of it. And it's a shame because... Because of that approach, a lot of young people kind of see history as separate to their lives or other than the rest of everything else they do. Um, whereas, in actual fact, what needs to happen is is a shift to see that it influences everything we do and it affects everything that we do and will continue to do so. And I think right now, in terms of, I don't know, access to the internet and social media, when we think about the ways that people are self-archiving um, and capturing their own stories and hopefully we'll continue to present that into future generations. There's an importance just to give young people a voice um, to talk about how life is affecting them right now and, and how that will change as, as we get older. Brixton has been historically a very black area. Um, a lot of Jamaican and Caribbean migrants, when they came to this country, this is where they came. Um, we have Windrush Square because of that. Um, but... If you look at the makeup of our volunteers here or the types of people that come to visit, it tends not to be the old Brixtonians um, or people who kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason feel like things like this aren't for them, um, which is a real shame. Um, and I think that not even just in terms of um, having visitors, but we would benefit from having different types of volunteers coming in um, and giving their their kind of background and, and experiences to add into to what we've got on the team Um even when you look at kind of like every year we've got our festive bake uh, at Christmas time, um, it it would be nice, I suppose, to see you know someone come in and make an old Jamaican rum cake out of uh, Brixton windmill flour. Um, so fingers crossed, we'll get some in. <laughs> it would be nice to see uh, more things like this podcast happening that makes the whole world, like that world, more accessible to people who don't know what's going on, um, whether they're working in the industry or not, whether they've a volunteering even if they're not a baker just because yeah it's important and it's affecting their lives and I think 
there's a lot more work that we can do at the mill in terms of educating people and just getting them interested. Um, but it would be nice to see more other mills and other bakeries kind of open up a bit more. Um, I know every year there's National Mills Weekend. Um, be nice for that to kind of be publicised a bit more um, to be on the milling community um, and kind of school groups you get roped in on, on coaches and stuff um, because someone like my mum or my dad they just wouldn't know about that um, if I wasn't already volunteering so I think there's a big job around yes educating people but also the ways in which uh, or the mediums that people are using to, to do that whether that's podcasts whether that's I don't know tv shows etc um, be nice to get a, a million vlog <laughs> running maybe potentially um, at this point in time there's a real urgency um across the country, across the world, to protect um, assets or assets in the community in terms of heritage and in terms of um, people's understanding of, of what the area has been like. Um, and I think, yeah, obviously, fingers crossed that we'll be here for another 200 years, hopefully, um, and we'll just keep passing it down. So, yeah. India Hamilton is chef and co-founder of Scoop, the sustainable cooperative in Jersey. And she's just completed an MA in food and development at the University of Sussex. Throughout her time on the MA programme, India has been feeding us little gems of knowledge and insights that she picked up along the way. The course is taught by lecturers from multiple departments at the university and aims to explore the true complexity of links between food and development across the world. We spoke to two of the lecturers on the programme. Lydia Cabral is Research Fellow at the Institute of Development Studies, and Pedro Mohani is Senior Lecturer in Geography at the School of Global Studies. I guess one important thing that we try to, um, to add to um, the landscape uh, on um, food systems thinking, there's actually a, quite a lot on offer in the UK, around the world, on um, you know food um, food studies, food systems perspectives. But we, what we really add is um, um, a very strong focus on development, and within that, um, um, a strong concern with um, how um, the pursuit of um, more sustainable and fairer um, food futures uh, is um, is largely a political process. Which, which is about managing conflicting interests, uh, managing paradoxes, uh, managing contradictions uh, in the system. So I think we put a lot of emphasis on the development nature of, um, of the food issues and the need to, um, um, to, to take a sort of a, an ethical um, perspective that, um, that is concerned not only with aspects related to environmental sustainability, but also with, uh, with fairness, with equity in the system uh, more broadly. We try to, uh, in the, uh, the course, to, uh, to really capture the, 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 um, the, multi, the multidimensional character of, uh, of food as a development issue, which is um, not only about um, addressing hunger and malnutrition, which are of course, um, still huge, uh, huge problems if you consider that uh, about 2 billion people in the world are still struggling with malnutrition and that's likely to increase now um, under the, uh, the current pandemic. So that, that continues to be the, uh, the biggest challenge. 
but, uh, but there are other challenges which are connected to these and that are related with how we, uh, we, we use natural resources, uh, with how access to resources, water, land, um, you know, resource, financial resources, markets are, are distributed in the system. The fact that there are some clear contradiction, contradictions between different development objectives, um, um, in, you know, uh, should you put first um, ecological sustainability, for example, going for um, uh, greener sources of energy, or is it more important to ensure that you have um, food availability and access to the most vulnerable? Sometimes there are contradictions between different objectives, and I think we try to uh, to discuss those to, to the extent uh, uh, possible. So I think one strong element that uh, I particularly try to bring into this course is, is that emphasis on the political nature of, um, of, of food, um, which uh, relates to those um, uh, contradictions, competition for resources, but also different ideas, different understandings of how the world should, uh, should operate. Uh, some people are more concerned with, um, with um, you know, ensuring the system is efficient, there is little waste uh, in the system. Others are more concerned with uh, uh, people having, you know, um, uh, capacity to engage with decision-making, to uh, protect their identities, protect their territories. So there are these different uh, sort of uh, interests and epistemologies within the system, and, and that's uh, something that we try to, to engage with. Of course, to fully be able to in, engage and understand this multidimensionality and the political nature of, of food, you need uh, to draw on different disciplines. So you need to understand history, you need to understand class, you need to understand political settings, you need to understand geographies, as Pedro uh, emphasize. So we do need an interdisciplinary lenses and I, I think what we're offering through this course is very much, um, very much tries to, to do that. So the, the reason we started this um, MA in food and development was uh, in addition to my interest in studying food systems uh, was that there were all these developments on campus and beyond around the sustainable development goals and building also on the strengths across campus both at the at ideas and in global studies on um, our expertise in development studies um, we thought it was extremely important to to set up such a course that uh, tackles the complexities of the food systems with a specific the course tries to bring in all those different viewpoints together we have anthropologists uh, and uh, political scientists and me as a natural scientist and other people bringing all these different perspectives together um, to highlight um, the different actors and processes that 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 exist here uh, and as, as Lydia was saying earlier as well um, it's go moving beyond issues around malnutrition undernutrition and food security which which is which you know very important uh which are very important but there's there's just more to that as well building a conversation with researchers like lydia and pedram provides you with an opening of un 
of sort of understanding what understanding things in such a, a different way it's um it's been in that sense incredibly helpful from a development perspective which is this huge complex thing um i development itself is can also be seen and utilized in your own home or in your own business um because i think there's this idea that we're developing and the global south needs to develop more than the global north but actually in this in the time of of challenging with faces we all need to kind of look at ourselves and look at our own practices and it's a it's been an incredible tool for me who gets a bit overwhelmed by the larger bigger issues but has found it hugely practical to come and take to my own place of work which is a small island which is just jersey <laughs> and it helps me articulate the importance of looking globally looking into unexpected places and learning from those areas we have this course but um, i think this course is helping pedro and i to create uh, together with many other colleagues from uh, um, both um, the school of global studies and the institute of development studies who um, deliver uh, the course so it's creating some sort of a community of, um, of um, a community of thinking a community of practice around food issues and i think i think what our ambition is to to expand that beyond the course so it's not only uh, the master's program that um, that uh, that we deliver uh, to students but it's also these other networks that are created in the process and we very much um, you know try to connect with um, with different uh, different players in the uh, in the food system um, through different ways so we've uh, we've had seminars on on food issues bringing bringing in uh, not only academics but also practitioners from the field so we very much welcome you know those um, to be to have those opportunities and we've also um, had um, you know have a plan of having more regular field visits we we managed last year to take our students to a permaculture um, site here in Sussex just around the corner from um, from the university so very convenient um, and, and just get a sense of uh, those local experiences with uh, with the issues that we discuss uh, in the course. Unfortunately, uh, at the moment, we we're not able to organize uh, other such visits. But this is another way of engaging with a broader community out there, and uh, and in that way, you know, enrich enrich the learning experience, but also expand our this community. Jonathan Boas has farmed for over 50 years at his 600-acre mixed arable farm in Worcestershire. He's a conventional farmer, and he's come up with lots of simple ways to make his conventional arable system more ecological and profitable. Jonathan is a tractor fiend, and he uses his machines in creative ways to get the most from his system. That tongue-in-cheek, but this is true, I actually own a hundred tractors, believe it or not. Having said that, a lot of this is sort of museum and old classic stuff and that, which is a, another great interest of mine. But what we tend to do is look at a machine uh, and, and see what functions it can do on the farm besides what it was originally designed for. A couple of classic examples are the... Um, 
the old precision chop forage harvesters, uh, which as well as picking up grass with it for silage, which we, we don't any longer do, we use it um, to harvest. We, we mow with a conventional mower, not a mower conditioner, these clover lays. Then we pick it up with a precision chop forager and blow it into the... Uh, muck spreader which um, spreads it so it acts like a seed drill really the muck spreader does the muck spreader is also used um, as a composting machine we put it in it and and, and run it stationary and it, st- it stirs it all up uh, as well as we use it to spread and uh, the farmyard manure and the, so we make multiple uses out of the muck spreader really and this has been my policy all along really is, is adapting and making machines to do as much as possible on the farm something I enjoy a lot as well This episode of Farmerama was produced by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose, and Katie Revel. Thank you to Treedom for supporting this episode. Our Patreon supporters help make Farmerama possible. And even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. If you'd like to become a supporter, visit patreon.com slash farmerama. Community support for Farmerama is provided by Hannah Sutherland, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!